0: Ah, well, good morning again. It is still morning. We've got a few minutes, 45 minutes till it's no longer morning. Um, but it is good. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. It is good to be with family. That's been our theme for the year, family. And hopefully, as I said, you got to spend some extra time with family this past week, celebrating Thanksgiving. And um, I don't know about you, but I love my family. I love my biological family, and I love my church family. Um, but it wouldn't be true to say that in every family, sometimes things get a little messy. Sometimes things aren't always enjoyable or healthy or easy. Um, There's things you just got to work through. And that is true in my perfect family with perfect four kids and a perfect wife. Things sometimes get messy. Um, Things have to get figured out. Extended family, things just get messy sometimes. But I love the encouragement in God's Word as you look all throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, all the heroes of our faith. It just... I love the Bible, doesn't sugarcoat anything, doesn't hide the truth that every hero of the faith had some messy family situations, right? That Jesus himself, he chose to partner with Abraham. This is like before my message, before we're jumping in there, but... um, God said, I want to make a covenant with you, Abraham, right? I'm going to make, through you, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And Abraham had no kids, right? And he says, no, but one day you're going to have as many kids. Look up in the sky, see all the stars, look at the sand. You're going to have so many. You're going to be the father of nations, right? And so this idea that God covenanted with Abraham. But if you read the story of Abraham, he lied. He, like, he was afraid of kings, killing him, and so he lied and said his wife wasn't even his own wife. Um, He did things where he messed up, uh, but yet God said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at Jacob. Jacob, he was a deceiver. He stole things. Um, But God says, yeah, but I'm going to make a nation. I'm going to change your name from Jacob to Israel, and I'm going to partner with Israel, right? You go through all the history, right? Moses was a murderer, and yet he's like the pinnacle, right, of the Old Testament. And then you go through King David, right, an adulterer, you go through, uh, Jesus. I just was reading the other day, Jesus is um, in, in Matthew, right? It reads his genealogy, and it kind of goes through where he came from. And even like Rahab is in there, who wasn't even an Israelite. She was a prostitute. And yet, it's listed there that David came from her, and that Jesus eventually came from her lineage. So to say that Jesus' family was perfect, man, it was messy as well. Jesus was born into a messy family. You were born into a messy family. This church, as much as I love you, sometimes things get messy in here. And then we're learning. But there's enough love. I, I, I guess I love that God is a god of love and there's grace where sin abounds his grace much more abounds where there's where there's things get messy you just learn and you grow right all throughout scripture the trials and tribulations it just it produces perseverance and character all these things and so i just want to encourage you that even if you had a difficult thanksgiving can I tell you, you are born into the right family. You are right there to be blessed, to be used by God, to be a blessing. And that God, there's nothing that God can't redeem, right? God is able to redeem every situation, every friendship, every family relationship God is able to redeem. And I just wanted to encourage you with that and just kind of, actually, I don't think I've ever taught on this. I don't know if I have time to like really dig deep into it, but I was quoting Man, this morning, I was putting things up. I was quoting phrases like old sayings. I don't even know what they mean. Um, and I've heard this phrase. Does anyone ever, ever heard this phrase? My kids may have never heard this phrase. That blood is thicker than water. Anyone ever heard that phrase before? Have my kids ever heard that? My oldest, my younger ones, I've never heard that before. Blood is thicker than water. And it's kind of used in society as meaning that like family, your bloodline is like you're thicker, right? You have, you have thick relationships. You can weather storms better than just through you know, fleeting friendships. And that's how we use that term. But reality is, when that was first used, it says the blood of the covenant is stronger than water, and I won't go through a whole teach on it. But the blood, meaning that blood of the covenant, right? All throughout God's word, you read about the blood of the covenant. Um, we're in covenant with God. That that is stronger than actually water, which actually that's the womb. That when I was born, my four kids came out of the same womb, and so those four kids are, are related through water, and that blood covenant is actually stronger than your family relationship. And so we actually quote that backwards, right? Uh, what's the one that I say wrong all the time, and I'm sure I'm the only one that ever says it wrong? Um, oh, man. I want to go say, I'm so bad. When I go to say someone's name, I know your name, and all of a sudden, poof, it goes away. And I had a phrase, and now when I have to go say the phrase, poof, it went away. Um, I can remember movie quotes, no problem. Names and things I, I go to say, they disappear sometimes. Um, anyways, I won't say that, but the, the idea is, I want to keep reading on this. This idea is blood is thicker than water. Um, I heard this story that there was a man that was getting chemo treatment for his cancer. And uh, they, the doctor said, "You know, stage one, we'll be able to treat this, we'll be able to heal you, no, you know, no anxiety. And he was going to get um, chemotherapy through IV. And in one of his treatments, something happened blocked up. It got dislodged. And the chemo spilled off on his skin, onto his flesh. And um, it caused these bad sores. And so, obviously, he, went to, at the, he was at the hospital. And they kind of dressed the wound. There, And he was talking to the doctor. And he said, how is it that something you're pumping inside of my body that's supposed to bring life and health can actually destroy my flesh? And the doctor paused for a second. I'm going to read the quote. He said this. The blood can handle what the flesh can't. Wow. The doctor had probably had no idea how profound that statement is. The blood can handle what the flesh can't. My flesh and blood, brothers and sisters, sometimes things get difficult. But when I'm in blood covenant, when I'm in relationship with God, and I'm in relationship with you, and God has called me to be in relationship with you, the blood can handle what the flesh can't. Where I've, I've covenanted with my wife, I'm, under, I'm in a covenant. I'm in, in a type of blood covenant. I've made a covenant before God and man that I'm in relationship with this wife. I can handle things that I couldn't handle in my flesh because God is in me and with me and in that relationship. There's things that, that the blood can handle that the flesh can't. And I just thought, man, I need to share that this morning. Um, and I'll use that as a segue because where I want to go this morning is I was thinking about where to talk from on this Sunday after Thanksgiving and what kind of brought, I was going, I, I read scripture all the time and if you know, Romans chapter 8 is one of my favorites, so I just read it. Can I say it this way? It's like one of my leisurely ones. Like sometimes I'm studying, I'm going through a book of the Bible, or I'm going through different things, but there's portions of God's Word that I just read all the time just because it's so good and I have so much history and it's so familiar that it's not my devotional reading. It's just like I'm going to add it on top of my devotional reading because it's so good. And so Romans chapter 8 is one of those for me. I've memorized lots of it, but I still just enjoy reading it. It's good. And something jumped out at me that in the first half of the chapter, Paul is talking to the Romans, and he says a lot of I and you, and it's kind of like personal that way. But in verse 15, it switches from you to we and us. And so I want to read to you. I don't think I threw it on the slide, I'm sorry. I'll just gonna read it to you. It says this in Romans 8:15, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you, do you hear this? You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba Father. And ever after verse 15, the rest of the chapter is all we's and us's. You received the Holy Spirit. And he adopted you and grafted you into the family of God. And now we cry out, Abba, Father. I have a personal relationship with God. But I also have a corporate relationship with God. I, by myself, am not the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. There's things that I... I, I learn in my own devotional time that God is telling me directly, but there's things I learn actually only through relationship, through family, through God speaking through someone else into my life. God chooses to speak sometimes through family, not directly one-on-one. And it's important, I I just was reading this, it transitioned, oh, from you to we and us. And I want to highlight towards the end of the chapter, we're going to read several verses here. It's kind of, for me, I I don't know if I want to phrase it this way, but it's the way that God loves us, the way that God loves his family. And God loves us in lots of ways, but I want to highlight in these last few verses, um, we're going to turn, in case you want to get there, we're already in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. And Paul raises five questions. And these five questions are kind of five ways that God shows his love to his family. So let's just read this long chunk of passage, and then I'll go back and kind of highlight some things. So Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Are you saying there's all the us's in there? It's not just you, it's us. Verse 33 Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen and who is even at the right hand of God who also makes an intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Such a jam-packed portion of scripture. And I love it. But I love that there's five things that Paul is asking these questions. And, the, and I love that to me they're all in the first five verses. I know we read all through 39 verses. But there's a question for each verse. 31, it's first question, 32, second question. So we'll kind of go down through these really quick. So verse 31, he asked this question. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's important to ask this question because I feel like this is kind of how rabbis did their, did their teaching. They didn't just give information, the students had to write down information. They would ask questions and start up a conversation. So Paul's asking this question because there's got to be probably some fear. He's writing to the Romans, right He's writing to all the Christians that are under the Roman Empire. And at this time, maybe Nero is the emperor and there's persecution, right? So there's a, there's a rightful fear of seeing people being tortured to death for their faith. And he's saying, "If the devil is against you and all the world is against you, do you still have a reason to fear?" He's asking these questions. If God is for you, does it really matter who's against you? I, I said it last night, I thought it was a throwaway statement, but someone told me later that was helpful for them. Devil, the devil is not the opposite of God. The devil is the opposite of the angel, Michael. They have the same equal powers. The, the devil is nothing compared to God. God is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. Satan has limited power. He has power, but it's limited. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. The devil is not everywhere at the same time. He's got minions. He's got demons, but he is not everywhere. But God is everywhere. God is omniscient. God knows everything. The devil does not know everything. There is no comparison between God. You and God are a majority. It doesn't matter how many people are against you. When you have fear of the world coming against you, you have fear of the enemy coming against you, you need to remember, wait a second, God is for me. If God is for me, this is a truth. You need to know that the love of God, you need to know that God is actually on your team or actually better put, you're on God's team. I love when Joshua sees the army, the, the angel of the army of the Lord says, are you for us or are you for them? And what was his answer? No, actually you're on my team. I'm not on your team, you're on my team. But there's something about, I don't know, I was thinking about my kids when they were really young and they had, you know, they're scared to go to bed. The closet doors had to be closed all the way. If they're open to crack, you know, ah, there could be something in the closet. But I would tell them the Veggie the song: God is bigger than the boogeyman, right? There's this idea that we need to know that God is for you. Hmm. I wonder how many of you have that question lingering. It's not settled. That God is actually for you, not against you. When something bad happens in your life, People outside the church, they say, oh, man, God's against me. God is not against you. In fact, just a few verses earlier, Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Amen. Meaning, even what the enemy means for harm and evil, God can use what, God is, what the enemy meant for evil. He can turn around for your own good. God is that powerful enough, he is that much for you, that no matter what comes against you, it's actually to turn out for your good. Do you have complete trust in God's love that he is for you at all times in all things? He's for you. See, I think I've heard it said this way. The most important day in your entire life is the day that you believe in God. You put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the most important day in your entire life. Maybe the second most important day in your life is the day you realize that God believes in you that God puts faith in you. And that's hard for me to say because it's easy for me to say, I'm for God, I am for God. That sounds, I can humble myself, I'm for God. But this verse says, God is for you. God is for you. He believes in you becoming more and more like him day by day. He entrusted the kingdom to you. I mean, think about it. The 12 disciples, we read the, the Gospels. These guys were not the brightest, making mistakes, talking about messy. The disciples were a messy bunch of group. Uh, my mom loves the, the series, The Chosen, because it, it highlights the infighting within the disciples, trying to figure out how to work together. Yes, it's about Jesus, but I think a lot of that Chosen series is about the disciples. And as we read the Gospels, man, it was messy. And yet Jesus rises from the dead and says, all right, I give you the keys. I'm out of here. He trusted the disciples with the gospel. He trusts you. It's not easy to say it's harder to receive that truth. It's easier to say, well, I just believe in God. It's harder for me to say that God believes in me. God has trust, entrusted me. He has faith that I can actually do things I don't think I can do. Some of us need to have that second day. Maybe you've had that first day, the greatest day in your entire life, that you trusted and believed that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior some of you need to receive the truth that God is actually for you. That God trusts you. He believes in you. That's the first one. So that's verse 31, right? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? New King James kind of makes it hard to understand. But the question is, is there anything... God wouldn't gladly and freely give you. Some of us have a mentality that we think God withholds good things from us. Well, I have to earn enough favor, enough grace in God's eyes. I have to do enough things for God to give me good things. This verse is so powerful. God the Father already decided to give you his son, meaning to have him be crucified and die for you. Let that, I mean, we all receive that truth that Jesus died for my sins. But put that in the context that God's love, he wants to freely and gladly give you everything good. If it's good, God wants to give it to you. It's his desire to give you the kingdom. But somehow we have fear. Sometimes we think, well, God doesn't love me that much. If he was willing to let his only begotten son die for you, I'm telling you, he's willing to give you anything else. There's nothing, I mean, that's, that's his most prized possession. And he gave it for you. He gave it to you. So is there something else in his kingdom that he, wouldn't, he would, like, okay, I don't know, we talk about miracles, healing, different things. Sometimes we're like, well, I don't know if it's God's will or not. Can I tell you, if it was God's will to have his son die for you, every other good thing that there could be, it's his will to give to you. It's his desire to give you every good thing. Now I understand, do you possess everything good? No, but this mentality has to shift in our, in our minds. It's not God as a God that's withholding good things from us and he's waiting for us to get our act together. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. If that's the same truth, the same truth in Him freely giving us all things. I, I connect it. When Jesus says, if your earthly fathers know how to give you good gifts, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give you good gifts? Yeah. My kids have no problems coming up with Christmas wish lists. Yeah. My daughter's the best at it, man. She's, she's writing that thing out and making sure everyone knows all the things she wants, right? She has no shame in letting you know everything that she would love having. Why is it that we don't treat God the same way? Well, I don't want to use up too much of my asking. <laughs> I was saying this to one of my kids. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on the platform or not, but I'll, maybe the pastor will tell me I can't do this later. But um, <laughs> God likes big asks. Careful, there's a K in there, right? God is actually attracted to big asks. It's his good pleasure to give you things. He gave you his son. How much more does he want to give you if he already gave you the best he could give? But yet we are fearful to ask him for things. And God is saying, if you knew my perfect love, it casts out fear. You would have no fear of asking for anything if you really knew how much he loved you. And I get it. I don't have to do the whole caveat. If you ask for a Ferrari and you don't get a Ferrari, how come? I'm not going to go down that road. You under, I think there's enough maturity in here. I don't have to explain everything to you. But I'm addressing something that there's someone in this room, maybe myself, that we need to hear this truth. It is God's good pleasure to freely give you the kingdom. He's just waiting for you to ask. He's waiting for you to ask. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. It's his good pleasure. Hmm. All right, let's go on the next one. Verse 33. I'm going to go find it now. I'll just find my Bible. How about that? It's a little easier. Romans eight thirty-three. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I love this. Who is accusing you? Who is charging you? Who is saying that you don't deserve things? Who is coming against you, right? I love this. It says, it is God who justifies. I've heard a definition of justif- justification, big Christian word, right? But I like this way, justified, it's justified, never sinned. I am justified, meaning I can stand before God just as if I'd never ever sinned my entire life. That's what justification means. Justified. Justified, had never sinned once, completely holy and pure in the presence of God. Who's, who dare charges you as a son and daughter? It is God who justifies. Jesus has justified you. Jesus has made you in right standing with the Father. I like that word stand. God is for you, right? That was the first one. Now God is saying, I'm standing with you. I'm standing in your corner. I'm standing with you. I like it this way. How about this? God is choosing you. I, I know I've heard since I was a kid, I heard John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. But it needs to become personal, right? God picked me, God predestined me, God chose me. God, whatever word you want to put in there, God chose you. He could have looked over you, he could have said, eh, not that one. But he chose you purposely, looking at you, looking at all your failures, all your faults, all your shortcomings. He looked at all that and he says, yeah, I want you. Yeah, I want you. He chooses you, and it's not just a one-time choice. Can I tell you, today he's choosing you again. Tomorrow he's going to choose you again. I'm getting ahead of myself. It's the last one. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. He will choose you again and again and again. He chooses you today. No matter what you've done wrong, you can come. Hmm. This statement, I had to write it down because this thought came to my head while I was driving. I was like, oh, i got to type this out. In our free will, we pathetically choose Jesus. In his sovereignty, Jesus passionately chooses us. I wish I could tell you my choosing Jesus is 100% on fire every single moment of every single day. But the reality is, I've got a lot of, in my history of my life, I have a lot of pathetically choosing Jesus. But there's never been a moment where Jesus isn't passionately choosing me. Hmm. It's connected to the next one. Now, before I jump to the next one, I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation, verse 33. It says this, Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Fear of rejection isn't allowed in God's love. Fear of being all alone isn't allowed in God's love. His perfect love casts out fear. Hmm. Let's go to the next one. Verse 34. So it's kind of similar. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? There's God who justifies. Now verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Ah. So good. In Revelations, I think it's chapter 12. I have it written down. Yeah, 12.10. It says the devil is the accuser of the brethren that he stands before the throne of God accusing the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. If the devil is the accuser, Jesus is the opposite. He's an advocate, but he's not just an advocate. He's actually praising God for you. I used to think when I heard that that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, I used to think that it's like, oh, God, have mercy on Ryan. Oh, Father, have mercy on him. Good Lord, that guy needs lots of your mercy, Father. That's actually not what he's doing. The verse before says, I've already been justified. I actually stand before God completely holy. Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father interceding for me, not crying out for mercy He's crying out for grace. That sounds maybe the same to you, but no, it's actually the favor, the goodness of God. He's praising me before the Father. If Satan is a constantly accusing me of all the things I've done wrong, Jesus is constantly saying, Oh, Father, have you seen Ryan? Did you see what he did right? Did you see this? Did you see this? Oh, he did this. He's praising me before the Father. He's the bridegroom, enraptured in love with his. His bride. And all he's doing is talking to his dad, bragging on his bride. Oh my goodness, Father, did you see them? They did this right. Oh my goodness, I can't wait to be with them face to face. Father, can it be today? God, look at them. Look how beautiful they are. He's enraptured with how beautiful and attractive you are. That mentality still needs to shift in my mindset. I'm just being real, but it needs to shift in someone else's mindset in this room that Jesus at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, not crying out for mercy for all the things you're doing wrong, but he's in love with you, praising you, honoring you before the throne room of God. Hmm. really quick. This thought came to my mind just right now. That Jesus, the week before he went to the cross, was looking down at Jerusalem. I, you saw some pictures several weeks ago. He was up on uh, the Mount of Olives. And he was looking, which is up above Jerusalem, the, the peninsula. And he's looking down and he weeps over Jerusalem. Oh man, like, like a mother hen collects her chicks. So I've longed for you to come under my protection. That's biblical. That shows the heart of Jesus. But I'm going to be bold. I'm just going to tell you, I don't believe that's still Jesus' posture today. That was before he went to the cross. We live in a different season. Jesus rose from the grave. He defeated sin, hell, death, the devil, the grave. Jesus defeated all those things. He's no longer weeping and moping over people that aren't coming to him. He actually is enraptured with his bride. He said, it is finished. It is finished. I paid it all. I paid. I ransomed my bride. She's mine. She belongs to me. He's no longer in a posture of weeping. He's actually in a posture of rejoicing. Jesus said it, right? John the Baptist was playing the dirge, the the funeral song. And he said, you guys didn't discern. It was time to mourn. He says, I'm coming playing the wedding song. And you're not rejoicing. You are missing the seasons. And I'm telling you, Someone needs to shift your mentality of how God thinks about you this morning. He's not looking at your failures, your sins, your mistakes, and weeping over your failure. He's actually rejoicing that you belong to him, that he paid it all, that you are his. Hmm. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hmm. Who is he who condemns? It's not Christ. Christ at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, joyfully interceding for you. He's a happy intercessor. Hmm. Right? All right, let's do the last one. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And it goes on listing even more. And then it finally says we're more than conquerors, right? Can anyone separate you from the love of God? Can anything you do separate you from God loving you? Can the enemy do anything to make God stop loving you? I love this. It says that God spins the tables around. Even your sin, even your mistakes, God can turn it around and make it a beautiful thing, right? He makes beauty from ashes. Even those things that are coming against you are actually building up you, building up your faith. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Jesus says, you're guaranteed difficulty and tribulations. In this world, you'll have difficulty. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, right? Jesus said, the world hated me. They're going to hate you. So he's giving them a real picture that there's going to be difficulty. There's going to be things that aren't easy in your life. But the reality is, in all these things, you are more than conquerors through Christ. His perfect love casts out fear. I don't know if I hit all these things. I'm going to go back real quick. In the first one. Fear of the devil or the world coming against you isn't allowed in God's love. Fearing God's intentions for you is ridiculous. The second verse, fear of lack or not having enough isn't allowed in God's love. Fearing God's ability to lavishly provide is ridiculous. The third one, fear of rejection or being all alone isn't allowed in God's love. Fearing God's reasons for choosing you again and again and again is ridiculous. Fear of making a mistake or not measuring up isn't allowed in God's love. Fearing God's condemnation is ridiculous. Fear of being separated and fear of failure isn't allowed in God's love. Fearing God's love running out is ridiculous. You cannot exhaust it. Hmm. And I love that God, through these verses, is explaining His love for you, for His family. But I love how God both encourages and challenges me when I spend time with Him. He builds me up in my most holy faith. He he puts courage inside of me. Even when he corrects me, I feel motivated and strength rise that I can overcome that next time. But he also challenges me. When I spend time with God, I've got things before me that I get to go try again, and it won't be easy, but he's with me. And I share all that because this is to encourage you that God is for you, not against you, that God lavishly wants to provide all these things that God wants to do for you. But actually, God wants you to love like him. There's people in your family. I'm just going to be real. That maybe you're not for. And God is saying, if they're in your family, you're to be like me. You're supposed to be for them, not against them. You're not supposed to accuse them or condemn them. You're supposed to freely give them all things. There's nothing that should ever be able to separate you from loving another family member, no matter what they do, right? Jesus on the cross, as they're spitting on his face, as they're making fun of him, mocking him, says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We're called to the same kind of love, that blood is thicker than water. It doesn't mean just in my biological family. It means in the family of God. There's a love That runs thick, right? This is a phrase. Through thick and thin, right? Good times or bad times? Hmm. In fact, I read something on that. I'm going to go back and find it. Blood is thicker than water. It actually has this meaning too. That bloodshed on the battlefield creates stronger ties than the water of the womb does. Bloodshed on the battlefield creates stronger ties... And the water of the womb does. I just hope, I don't know why the Lord is saying all this, but for someone in the room, there's someone in your family that is not your enemy. And you're called to be the one that stands for them before they ever stand for you. You're the one that's supposed to freely give them all things even if they never give you anything. You're the one that's supposed to never say anything negative about them, even though they speak negative about you all the time. You're the one that's saying, there's nothing you can do to make me stop loving you. Nothing can separate my love for you. This is just how the kingdom of God works. This is how the family of God loves one another. This is how you are to love, yes, even your biological family. Hmm. And as the worship team comes back up, we're going to close the service, but trying to figure out all of what God wants to say. Hopefully the Holy Spirit is highlighting something to you. In fact, as they come up, I'm just going to pray that simple prayer. Because I feel like I said several things. And maybe some of us walk out with different things. But Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Instead of me just praying that, can you join me in that prayer? Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? I avail myself to you. Jesus, I want to receive your love in a better way. Jesus, where I've withheld your love, where I've not allowed you to love me the way that you say you love me because of fear, because of lies, God, I want to receive your love in a greater measure. And God, where I need to extend love in a greater measure, Holy Spirit, would you convict me? Would you challenge me? Would you show me specific ways to walk in it? That I would lavishly love on those around me. Not just increasing in a small measure. God, I want to give my full devotion to you and in the same way, give my full devotion to those around me. To learn how to practically do what I've been told a thousand times To love you with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, and to love those around me the way that you love me. The new commandment you give me. To love my brothers as you have loved me. So God, I thank you that you've declared this to be a year of family. Where the enemy has tried to bring a wedge God, we recognize it. And we say, if the enemy be against me, God, you're for me. God, you're for my family. You've given me the ministry of reconciliation. You entrust me to repair the breach. You call me and name me repairer of the breach, rebuilder of the broken roads. I choose to see myself the way you see me. I'm not gonna listen to the lies the enemy where he accuses and condemns me. I choose to hear your intercessions over me, Jesus. The way you talk about me in the presence of the Father. Would you open my ears to hear the way you pray about me, Jesus? And may I learn to pray the way you pray, to intercede the way you intercede. That my cry for justice and for you to avenge me, God, would be melted. And instead, I would pray the way you pray, Jesus. That my love and affection would become real for people that have hurt me. That I would bleed forgiveness. I would bleed love and affection and grace and mercy. That my prayers would sound different, God. As I hear the way you pray about me, you would change the way I pray about those around me. That God, my love would become faithful the way you faithfully love me. As I receive the truth that there's nothing I can do to separate me myself, from your love. God, I choose to walk in that same kind of love. Holy Spirit, help. <laughs> help. You've raised the bar today, Jesus. I choose to believe that I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. I choose to believe not only that you died for me, Jesus, but that I can lay down my life for my brethren. I choose to believe that you believe in me. So would you change me, God? Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. You are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me. This is what I pray today, God. I'm praying that you change my heart. Change my mouth change my thoughts, change my attitude, change my actions. Conform me into the image of Jesus Christ. May they know you, God, by the love we have for one another. May it be real and genuine and deep and battle-tested. That the blood of the battlefield would run thicker than the water of the womb that the blood can handle what the flesh can't. So I choose to stop loving in my flesh and loving by the power of your blood. Not by power, not by might, but by your spirit, God. So would you create in me a clean heart, oh God, filled with clean thoughts and right desires. Renew a right spirit in me. God, I know that you will cast me not away from your presence. That I am yours and you are mine. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Would you stand as we sing one last worship song? And if you need prayer for anything, we'll have some leaders up front just to to minister and agree with you and pray with you. And after this last song, you are dismissed and can enjoy the rest.